All right, everybody, good morning. How are we doing? Fantastic. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here today. I want to uh, echo what Ed said about Saturday night. Many of you, um, well, let me ask you this. How many of you have heard me preach for 15 minutes? If you've been here on Saturday night, you have. My sermon's on seven minutes. It's incredible. I just talk really fast, that's all. No. All right, well, I'm glad you're here. We're in a series, and we've been in the series about the Holy Spirit. Now, this is week 14 or 15 or something like that. And we've been looking at the gifts of the Spirit, the, the actual gifts. And we've been looking recently at the most visible gifts. We talked about the gifts of tongues. We talked about the gift of um, prophecy. And today, we're going to start talking about the gift of healing. A very interesting gift that there's probably a lot of going around. We're going to talk about that for the next few weeks. Spiritual gifts are powers, skills, abilities, knowledge given by God through the Holy Spirit to Christians. We've said it over and over again. This is God's work through us. We don't own it. We don't possess it. We can't make it happen. The Holy Spirit does it. We are simply the conduits to be able to allow it to flow through us. Paul tells the church that the purpose of the spiritual gift is to build up other believers and ultimately to the gospel. God gives these gifts for his use, but in the Corinthian church, there were apparently a type of status symbol or people were using the gift that they had been given to, to raise themselves up, to suggest that they were uh, more holy, more spiritual, more godlike than the other people. I'm sure we've never seen that before here uh, in our culture today. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Now I want you to pay attention to something in this passage. It's easy to skip over it. Note that the gift of healing is plural. To another the gifts of healing. So there must be more than one type of healing gift. The gifts of healing could be a wide variety of skills or abilities. It could be the power to do the miraculous or dramatic healing like making a lame person walk, or it could use the understanding of medicine. It could even be the ability to empathize and show love to other people to the point of healing an emotional wound, struggle that they're having. It could be someone who's gifted to help somebody heal spiritually and have nothing to do with their physical body. Gifts of healing. When Jesus healed, he seemed to do it differently almost every time. One time he'd say, simply get up and walk. Another, stretch out your hand. Another, put mud pack on your eyes, walk down and wash your face in water. Another time he sent a sick person to the priests. 2,000 years before HMOs and the Affordable Care Act and co-pays, Jesus made a divinely appointed house call to earth, freeing people spiritually and healing them of their physical needs. The Gospels are so full of stories of Jesus healing the sick, 
in miraculous and sometimes unusual ways. In fact, the Gospels tell us we can't even include all the things he's done. In fact, Jesus always seemed to heal people differently. Sometimes he was there. Other times he was distant. Sometimes he healed people himself, and other times he gave others the power to heal in his name. Sometimes he simply spoke. Other times he spoke directly to demons. Sometimes he commanded a dead girl to rise. Another time he told a dead man to get up. Another time he told him to come out of the grave. One time he passively healed a woman who just touched his garment. Almost seemed to not have known it was going to happen or was happening until it happened. Once the apostles received the Holy Spirit, they too began to heal people. And again, each situation was unique. Let me show you some of these passages. Acts 4.29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed in the place where they were gathered together, it was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. day healing imposters do not do not they were praying God we want to speak with boldness we're going to proclaim the gospel message give us the power to be bold yes they're persecuting us yes we are we're concerned about our own safety but most of all make us bold we're going to teach your word while you reach out your hand and heal people we don't do that Healed because of us. If anybody here is going to get healed, it's because you're going to do it. Through your name, the Holy Servant, Jesus. You see, they got it. They understood. Our job is to proclaim the gospel with with power and with, with might. And while we're doing that, if God chooses, he can then heal to validate the message. They didn't claim to be healers. They knew that whatever happened didn't come from them. I wish we could learn that today. I'm going to boldly proclaim the gospel while you decide if, when, how, and whom you want to heal, if anyone. And it doesn't change the message. Whether you heal or not, the gospel is still the gospel. If healing happens, it's not because of us. It's only because God ordained it in the name of Jesus. They got it. They understood supernatural healing only comes from a supernatural source. The apostle in Acts were often used by God when God decided to heal someone. Acts 5.16, the people gathered from towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Acts 8.4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. That's their job, preach the word. Philip went down to a city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was much joy in the city. Notice Philip went to Samaria. You don't go to Samaria if you're Jewish, remember? They're, they're the heathens. They're, they're don't go. Yeah. 
Why would they believe him? Because God was doing miracles in the midst. Acts 28, 7. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him, he healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. God is healing people in the midst of the apostles. Acts 3, 2, and a man lame from was being carried who they laid daily at the gate of the temple that's called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go in the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what do I have to give to you? In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet, another healing. The apostles were bestowed with the healing nine seventeen. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul had been blinded, Saul. And And he regained his sight, and then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Paul would later, in one of his writings, led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one, Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all Jews who lived there, came to me, and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and I saw him. Paul himself was the beneficiary of a healing of God done through Ananias. Ananias didn't heal him, God did. Acts 14, 8. There's a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth. Let me pause there for a minute. In the Jewish tradition of the first century, you'll read in the Bible over and over, someone was this way from birth. The reason they tell you that is that some people who weren't born that way and developed blindness or developed lameness or whatever, sometimes they were healed. Sometimes it just got better. But people who were that way from birth, they saw as the curse of God. They were born that way. Their family had done something. There was something in them that was being punished. The only person who could heal somebody who had something from self because God put it there. Okay, so when you read in the scriptures that somebody was healed from birth, what they're saying is, if this person gets healed, it has to be God. Side point. All right. He never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking at him intently and seeing that he had the faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet, and he sprang up and began walking. Sometimes it's clear that the was done to validate the message. Acts 2, 22. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. 
This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Another passage. At Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue, and they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. What do they mean the gospel? What's their job? Proclaim the gospel. Are they there to heal? No. Can they heal? Maybe. But the fuck. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly, there's that word again, for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Don't miss this. What are they doing? Proclaiming boldly the name of the Lord. That's their job. What is God doing? Bore witness to their word by doing signs and wonders through them. The apostles, that's when you know that the gospel has been presented. When you present the gospel and some people reject and leave, and other people stay, you know you've presented it. If you present the gospel and everybody's all in, you didn't present it. Okay, so they presented the gospel. God validated their message with signs and wonders. And many came to know the Lord and many did not. Now here's the deal. Healed and who doesn't? We're not told that some had the faith to heal. We're not told it is a prerequisite. We'll talk about that later. Our healing's never based on us. We can't make God heal us. We can ask. We can pray and we should. But healing, healing always comes from God. It's never based on us. You're not more worthy because God chose to heal you or didn't. You're not more spiritual because God chose to heal you or different, didn't. Our healing's never based on us. It's not some spiritual puzzle where if we just push the right buttons in prayer and faith that we can suddenly get a healing to pour out like a slot machine. That's not how this works. You and I are healed for one reason and one reason only. God's sovereign will. It is either in his plan best for us to be healed or best for us to stay sick. We don't know what God wills, so we pray for it. It was in God's plan for John the Baptist to be beheaded. It was in God's plan for John the Baptist to be beheaded, no matter how much they prayed. He even sent a message to Jesus and said, are you the one? They're about to kill me. I want to make sure you're the one. And Jesus said, yeah, I'm the one. But this is going to happen because it's God's will. God let John the Baptist die. God let Jesus die. God let Lazarus die. It was in God's plan for Jesus to suffer and then die on the cross. Jesus himself prayed, Lord, if there's any other way, take this from me. No, this must be. Because millions of people are depending on you tonight. And what's happening to you in this moment is much greater than you. If a physical or spiritual illness has happened to you, 
or to someone you love, God has allowed it. We have a hard time with that. He could have stopped it, but he allowed it. He's sovereign. He doesn't even owe us an explanation. He doesn't owe us one more heartbeat. He doesn't owe us anything. Every person who's ever followed Jesus and every person who's rejected Jesus thus far with few exceptions, Enoch and Elijah, have died from illness, accident, or at the hand of others. Death is running at about 100%. Whether you prayed, whether they didn't pray, whether you knew Jesus, whether you didn't know Jesus, every person born under sin is going to die physically. It's the way it is. Every man of great faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, David, Jesus, all eventually died physically. Why? Because it was God's sovereign will. Just as we showed up here on earth one day and didn't ordain our birth date, we will leave here one day on the day we didn't set. God's the one that counts our numbers. Our faith can move the heart of God, but it can't directly command the hand of God. Let me repeat that. Our faith can move the heart of God, but it can't direct or command the hand of God. God will do as he has always done. He will do what he deems best, period. I spend a great deal of time with people who've been rocked by unexpected illness and disease. They all want to be healed. If they know Jesus, they're praying for healing, and we join them in those prayers with all of our hearts. When someone gets ill physically, it doesn't surprise God. They knew it was coming. He knew it was coming. He could have stopped it, but in his sovereign will, he's allowed it because in some way it's best. We may not understand it. We may not be given the blessing of understanding, but if God has allowed it, it's the best option. Not a good option. Not an okay option, the very best option to advance the gospel message. He doesn't do second best. God allows disease and death because it is best in his plan. We act as though we deserve to live a long life and God owes it to us. Particularly if we think the world revolves around us. All of us are born into a fatal disease state of sin. Our bodies here on earth will die. But those reborn in the Holy Spirit will not. We will shed this body and we'll get a new one. No biggie. One day we're all going home. And in that moment, we are once and for all forever healed. God heals everybody. It's just sometimes that healing happens on the other side of eternity. Jesus speaks a great deal about our flawed perspective on life. And let me just tell you where we're going here. It is very difficult to understand healing if you don't understand God's perspective on death and illness. So we're going to talk about that quite a bit. Our flawed view of life is part of our disease state. We're born selfish. We're born in sin. We're born self-worshipping and arrogantly thinking that our lives are all we have and everything here is about us. God, I don't care what happens to everybody else. You heal me. 
God, I don't care what you heal me. I'm sick. You need to heal me. But God, through the scriptures, repetitively tried to teach us that none of that's true. Luke 12, 22, he said to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, nor about your body, what you'll put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They neither have storehouse or barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If you are then not able to do a small thing such as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Oh, you of little faith. And do not seek what you are to eat or what you are to drink. Do not be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your Father knows that you need them. Instead, sink his kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus also teaches... Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Jesus teaches over and over. This isn't your home. This place is just a blip on the screen of eternity. I want my followers to see bigger, to understand the bigger picture. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Lay up yourself treasures in heavens where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there's your heart. Notice he says, he doesn't say where your heart goes, your treasure goes. What he says is where your treasure goes, that's where your heart's going. You want to know where your heart's headed? Look at where you're spending money. Look at what you put value in. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you once too walked where you were living in them, but now you must put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And he goes on, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were called to one body, and be thankful. What, what he's saying is, look, focus on the things of heaven. Focus on home. I was talking to a friend of mine at the hospital who, who was in the military, and he was in Afghanistan, and he said, every time I was there, all I could think about was home. That's all I could think about. Every time we had a smell or there was an event or something, I just thought about home, how desperately I wanted to get home. That's how we're supposed to feel in our spiritual walk. 
Everything here is just a shadow of the real deal. Everything here is just an image of something very real. We, we as believers should be longing to go home. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods and laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. That's the world's message. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you prepared, who will there be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. You see, we have to be focused on being rich towards God. Our purpose here on earth is not to glorify ourselves and stack up our own stuff. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever should save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What if it profits a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he's done. The message of Jesus and the apostles over and over and over is get your eyes off the earth and point them towards heaven. Stop focusing on what's happening here. This is gone like that. James, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we'll do this and that. Our life is a mist. It's like that, and it's gone. During our brief stay on earth, we should live with eternity before us. Whether we live five years or 105, our lives are still as fleeting as vapor. Even Jesus felt the urgency of being asked about God's work while the opportunity to remain. He says this, as long as it's day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. Night's coming. We have to work today because night's coming and we're going. The God who rules all things may overrule our ideas. If we're not holding our earthly treasures loosely, overriding our plans can feel devastating. You see, we're down here on earth for a vapor moment and we're trying to control everything and build up everything and protect ourselves and worship ourselves. And every once in a while, God says, no, I'm overriding that. That's not going to happen. God often allows unpleasantries into our life to remind us that this world is not our home and we're not in charge. When do you pray fervently when things don't go your way? When do you stop praying when everything's going well? Why do you think God allows trouble in your life? To get you on your knees. To get you focused on what he's doing. Philippians 3.19, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, he says. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers who I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord. Their end is their destruction. You see, our time here is like a vapor and then it's gone. Like an exhalation in a cold weather. It just, it's gone. Our lives show up for a brief moment on earth and then they disappear. 
I heard the other day somebody died at the age of 92, and people said, oh, so young. Okay. All right. Going home. You see, all of us born and gather in an eternal home and live forever in the rewards of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 3.12. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test the sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. When you think about eternity, go ahead, think about it. Think about it. Think about eternity right now. No ending. Always another day. Then another, then another, then another. There'll never be a time when there's not another day. God put eternity into the heart of man. We are all eternal beings. We were created in the image of God and he is eternal. It's hard to wrap your mind around eternity. End. But in eternity, nothing ends. It just keeps going. Tomorrow, another day, keeps going. There'll never be a time when the day doesn't happen. And God put that in our hearts. We all think we should live forever. Whether we believe in Jesus or not, there's something in us that says we're going to live forever. That we're going to leave this place and go somewhere else. Some people believe that we're going to go somewhere else to Nirvana, somewhere. I mean, but the point is, is that almost every human believes there's something after this. Why? Because God put eternity in the heart of men. Ecclesiastes 3.11. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He has also put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. We need to realize this. Everyone, every person you've ever seen will live for eternity. Those who believe in Christ and those who do not. The scriptures are clear. Everyone lives for all of eternity. The scriptures are also clear. They don't all live in the same place. You see, we like to forget that everyone lives for all of eternity because we like to think that if they reject Jesus, that it's all over. It's not. It's just beginning. Matthew 25, 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he'll sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he'll separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. Then he will answer them saying, truly, truly, I say to you, you did not do it to one of the least of these. You did not do it to me. And they'll go away to, notice it, eternal punishment. But the righteous into eternal life. People are eternal. It is not that you 
have eternal life. It's that you have eternal life in Christ. And that makes all the difference. Because of his righteousness, you'll be with him in heaven. Sometimes Christians seem to talk as though we go to this eternal life in heaven and everyone else perishes. It's not true. It's not what the scriptures teach. People believe that, but that's not what's in this book. If you accept heaven, you have to accept hell. Not my word. taught more about hell than he did about heaven. Perhaps if we understood this better, we might be better evangelists. If we truly could wrap around our mind that the people we love who don't know Jesus are going somewhere for all of eternity, maybe, just maybe, that might make us more bold. William Booth is one of my favorite people to read about. William Booth founded the Salvation Army. Uh, he had one focus, and that was to advance the gospel. He has some incredible quotes. I want to show you about four of them here. Now remember, this is back in the 1880s. I mean, it was a ways back. I consider that the chief dangers will confront the coming century will be religion without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. That's us. Every one of us. Saved without being broken about your sin and repenting. You can live a Christian life without Christ. You can somehow live on this earth without the Holy Spirit. Really? Another quote. Most Christians would like to send their recruits to Bible college for five years. I would like to send them to hell for five minutes. That would do more for anything else to prepare them for a lifetime of compassionate ministry, and he's right. Waiting for a move of God, I am the move of God. This is one that I have written in my Bible and I keep on my desk. The greatness of a man's power is the measure of his surrender. The more we surrender, the more God is powerful. Here's one that he says that I think is great, too. All these, once I get on William Booth, I just go through all of them. You just have to sit there and listen to him. Faith and work should travel side by side. Step answering to step like the legs of a man walking. First faith, then works. Then faith again, then works again until they can scarcely distinguish which is one and which is the other. I love that image. I'm going to take a step of faith, and that's going to lead me to a step of works. I'm going to take another step of faith, and lead me to a step of works. And pretty soon you won't be able to tell which is which. Because they look the same. Some of you will love this one. Some of my best men are women. Thought I'd just throw that in there. All right. Here's the deal. I think our perspective of life has to be seriously readjusted. If you're a believer in Christ, this world is not your home. Quit making it your home. This place is not your destiny. The approval of people is not your goal. We're in a waiting room. You realize that, right? This is not the show. We're in a waiting room. We're in a green room, waiting for the real place we were created for. You see, we're spiritual beings waiting to go to the show. 
our time here. We're foreigners here. This is not our home. We're not supposed to be comfortable here. The longer we live, the more we crave going home. Our physical death here on earth is not the end, it's the beginning. It's the start of who we were created to become. We can surrender and make sacrifices here for the gospel because everything's evaporating. I say it all the time, as believers in Christ, we're going to watch the entire universe dissolve. Gone. It's incredible. The only purpose this world has is to give sinners time to find Jesus. That's the only reason it hadn't been destroyed yet. There are sinners here who need to know Jesus. That's the only important thing on this planet. And for us, it's not our home. We've been sent here as foreigners, as missionaries, to try to save people before the whole thing goes up. For what will it profit a man if he gathers the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? We sing it all the time. This world has nothing for me. I will follow you. has nothing for me. I'll follow you. But if you don't know Jesus, this life is all you have. Well, until eternal punishment. This is going to be the best you get. This world is the best place you're ever going to see. Our disease state and physical death is the best thing that awaits you. But please hear this. You too are in a waiting room. You're an eternal being. And since you're not righteous in Christ, since you chose to reject him, all that awaits you is eternal punishment in hell. Not my words. I'm not threatening you. Just stating what Jesus said. My advice to you is to use your time here on earth to find Jesus. Pursue him with everything you have. Take your doubts and your arrogance to him. My job is to point you to Jesus. He'll take care of the rest. If I can just get people to get over themselves enough to go talk to Jesus, he'll fix everything. So what does all this have to do with the spiritual gift of healing? If you don't understand the disease, you'll never understand the treatment. I learned that in school. If you don't see the world from God's perspective... If you don't understand how vaporized this place is, if you don't understand how small our time here is compared to eternity, if you don't see the world from God's perspective, you'll never get comfortable with disease and death. And if you can't get comfortable with disease and death, you're never going to know how to live. People don't start living until they've wrapped their mind around dying. I see it all the time. People get a terminal illness and now they're like, okay, Wow, now I'm free. I can, do, I can live. This is incredible. You'll never understand why God's people don't get healed every time on earth. Remember, the greatest healing takes place in our lives the minute we leave here. All of us will one day be healed of every disease, including sin. So we need to understand that from God's perspective, the most important healing that occurs on earth is spiritual. Your physical healing is minusculely important. That's a word. I just made that up. Compared to eternity. 
Healing a physical ailment while you're here on earth has no value if it doesn't move somebody towards the gospel. Healing on earth only has value if in doing so, that healing leads other people to spiritual healing and eternal salvation. So we pray for someone to be healed physically of a disease, and God doesn't do it. It happens all the time. One of my closest friends, we prayed like crazy for God to heal his brain tumor, and he's with Jesus now. I don't understand it, but I know who I stand under. And I know he's not complaining anymore. If God doesn't heal someone, it's simply because it wasn't part of God's eternal salvation plan. It's that simple. In other words, healing that person would not advance the gospel. Somehow, that person's death is going to bring more people to Christ than his life. As believers, we need to get comfortable with death. We really do. We don't live like we've conquered death. We live in fear. And it's only when you get comfortable with death that you can begin to truly live spiritual lives. Once you realize you're bulletproof, you can be expended for anything. The power of our faith is best demonstrated during difficult times. And often those times involve physical illness. Sometimes the greatest revelation of the strength of someone's faith is in the midst of their illness. It's in our suffering sometimes that we become the best evangelist, which is why we're suffering. Throughout the Bible, suffering always precedes glory, glorification. I love Peter, you know that. I love how he just cuts to the chase. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes on to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Quit acting surprised. You're on earth. You're following Jesus. He suffered. You're supposed to suffer. It brings us glory. It's why you're here. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If there's suffering, glory's coming. If there's suffering, glory is coming. God never wastes suffering. God never wastes pain. If you're going through it, he's allowed it because it brings glory to Christ in some way. If you're in, insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Romans 8, 16. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided, we skip this part, we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Suffering and glorification are always linked in the Bible. The greatest suffering of Jesus on the cross brought the greatest glory to God. It's through suffering that we move our hearts towards God. It's towards suffering that God has revealed in us. It's during the times of suffering that people see the truth faith that we have. Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake. Do you see this word coming up over and over? 2 Corinthians 4.16, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. 
for this light momentary affliction. This light momentary affliction. Light, not intense, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. There it is again. Suffering and glory. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. In other words, our glory comes from getting our eyes off of us and onto Him. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This message is through Scripture over and over and over. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Peter again, in this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, a little while, transient vapor mist on earth, if necessary, if, if God has deemed it, if God's demanded it, if God's ordained it, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes by fire, may be found to result in praise and, there's that word again, glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. For a little while, you're being grieved by trials, but you're bringing glory to Christ. All of these writers, Peter, Paul, James, understood we are here to suffer for Christ, and in doing so, we bring glory to him and we advance the gospel. At one point, Jesus taught, and he basically taught people that they have to give up their lives and die if they want to follow him. And he told people, you're here, if you follow me, there's going to be suffering, there's going to be trials, but fear not, I've overcome those. My people will suffer, and in suffering, they will see the glory. Paul himself, the scriptures say that he was there so that he could suffer. 1 Peter 4, do not be surprised when that trial comes at you. I wish I could just pound that into our brains. The trials are going to come. It's a chance for us to stand up, not fall down. It's a chance for each of us to understand the power of the Holy Spirit in us, for each of us to understand where our foundation really lies. Yes, you will be rocked. Yes, you will be shaken. It'll happen. But after that, there's, and during the midst of that, there's a foundation that rises up that even you don't know how to Don't act weird as though something unusual is happening. Peter, have a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Jesus said it best, of course. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, take up your Bible and follow me. He didn't say, take your journal and follow me. He didn't say, take your telephone and follow me. He said, you deny yourself, number one. Grab nothing that you own, bring nothing with you. Deny yourself. Second, take up the cross. We all have a cross to bear. There's going to be a moment for all of us that we're suffering. Take it up, be ready, embrace it, hold on to it. Grab onto it like Jesus held onto his cross. Be glorified, bring glory to Christ in it. Carry it with you. Follow Jesus, he says. Follow me. But in order to understand the spiritual gift of healing, 
One of the things we have to know, and I'll go through this more later, is the difference between the Gospels and the book of Acts and the letters of the Bible. I'm going to introduce this topic. I'll build on it later. The Gospel and Acts are historical documents. Okay, when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, those are historical documents. Accurate, true, every word from God. But the focus of those books is to tell you what happened when Jesus walked on earth and what happened when the early church started. Okay? They tell the story. They're historical reports of events that actually happened. They tell the story of Jesus, and at times, Jesus inserted some theology into them. There are times when Jesus stops and teaches and says, okay, now here's what that means. Okay? Jesus taught all the time, but the overall focus of this book is more to show you the life of Jesus and the life of the early church. The letters, the epistles of the New Testament, Romans, Corinthians, all those books are theological books. They were written to explain all the other things that weren't explained in the Gospels. They explain how the church is to operate, how the believer is to live, what Christ's Christ's sacrifice meant, why we should have hope, how we should face death, why we should, those are all, how do you live out this life and what is God really doing? The books are written by apostles and they tell us what everything meant through the Holy Spirit. So we have to be careful looking at the events of the disciples in the Gospels and the early church in Acts, these historical moments, and try to glean long-term theology from them. There were many things that happened in Jesus' ministry and in the early church that may not have been prescriptive for all churches for all times. In the gospel, Jesus routinely performed miracles that included healings and raising people from the dead and calming storms and casting out demons and all kinds of supernatural miracles. He's God. His ministry on earth was unique. He had to validate his message and even said, if you don't believe in me, believe in the miracles. In other words, I said I'm from God. I'm telling you I am God. I can forgive sins. I can work on the Sabbath. I'm God. Let me do something only God can do. I'll heal a blind person from birth. I'll heal a dead person from death. I'll do things only God can do. If you don't believe me, believe the miracles, he said. The miracles validate the message. In the early church, according to the historical book of Acts, healings, tongues, raising people from the dead, and casting out demons, and other miracles were so commonplace that they were almost routine. They lived in a time when God did these things all the time. You read about it like in the early church, things were happening all the time. The message hadn't been sealed yet. The scriptures weren't available. The printing press hadn't been developed. Somebody had to validate the messages. One example, there's been no authenticated accounts in the modern day church where a man or woman of God has laid hands on a dead person and raised them to life. It's never happened. It's commonplace in the first century. There's not been a case where people lie to the church leaders and don't give enough tithe and die instantly like Ananias did. Hadn't happened. It would improve giving, but it hadn't happened. Neither has anyone seen tongues of fire over the heads of people who receive the Holy Spirit. No churches at present have members routinely in speaking in languages that aren't their own. And those were common in the book of Acts. These were one-time occurrences used by God to establish the authenticity of the New Testament church. Yet healings from God do occur today. 
God never changes. If he desired to heal in the Old Testament, New Testament, to validate the gospel, he's going to do it now. But the question remains, does he do it in the same manner as he did in the early church? All I'm saying is we're not seeing it. God has chosen during this time to heal differently than what we saw in the early church. There are literally hundreds of accounts of miraculous healings today among countless Christians. But these are at the discretion of God alone. God miraculously heals some while choosing not to heal others for his divine purpose. I've seen them and I've been involved in them. Sometimes God miraculously heals. In God's higher wisdom, he knows who and what to heal and what's best for the believer in choosing not to heal somebody. Yes, miracles still happen, but they're not at the discretion of believers. You can't make them happen because they're not yours to give. They're not yours to empower. They come at the discretion of God alone. Let me just add something here that if you get nothing else out of today, I want you to hear this. Your healing is not based on the amount of faith you have. Your healing is not at all based or dependent on the amount of faith that you have. Don't let somebody tell you that. Please don't fall for that lie. Many people will tell you as they sit in hospice, that you, as you sit in hospice, that you just didn't have enough faith. Your healing is not dependent upon you. Let me repeat that. Your healing is not dependent upon you. Your healing is dependent upon what God wants to do in that moment to advance his gospel. The fact that he decides to heal you probably has very little to actually do with you. It has far more to do with what God's doing in the global world in this moment. And his decision to heal you may be something he does to impact nine generations from now. It's probably not about you. It doesn't mean you're super spiritual. It doesn't mean you're more important. It doesn't mean that God has to have you here. He chose to heal because he chose to heal because something is going to be changed if you're not here. People don't die of illness because they lack faith. They didn't pray hard enough. They didn't believe hard enough or they didn't tithe enough or they didn't read their Bibles enough or they chose not to go on that mission trip or their healing or lack of it is totally up to God, not you. It has nothing to do with you. And it has nothing to do with the person that God uses to bring the gift of healing to you, whether it's a doctor, whether it's a researcher, whether it's somebody who lays hands on you. Many times Jesus healed people who didn't even know who he was. He healed people who had absolutely no faith in him. He cast out demons from people who had no desire to follow him. I don't think we could argue very long that we think Paul lacked faith. You think Paul had faith? Scale of one to 10, where are we? Paul's faith, what do you think? Low 10, 10, low 10, whatever, low 10, all right. He had more faith than almost anybody in the scriptures. And yet he prayed all the time for healing. And God said no. Three times we're told, take this from me, no. My grace is sufficient for you, God said. In fact, not only did God not heal him, God did the opposite. He said, you're here so you can suffer and bring glory. 
He does heal through petitions of prayer. But there are times when his answer is no, because he has a higher purpose and plan. We probably won't understand it at the time. We won't really get it. We're going to continue to talk about healing next time I preach. But I often hear people say, I don't understand why God doesn't heal. I don't understand why God didn't heal me. I don't understand why God doesn't heal everyone. And I tell them he did. He does. He has. He did. Never forget that you and I were terminal. We had no hope. We were blind to our sin. We were paralyzed by our sin. We were in desperate need of a cure. We were dying spiritually for all of eternity. God's still in the business of miracles. I believe the greatest miracle on earth is the conversion of a blind sinner to see their sin and to change the human heart. The miracle of human conversion is greater than any healing miracle that ever happens on this earth because it's eternal. A healing miracle is only temporary. The person healed will eventually die, but the one that's born again has eternal life. Can never be lost. Those who call themselves faith healers, can I just tell you just to run? Just run. Save yourself time. God's the one who chooses to heal people. Faith healers set up a win-win situation. If I happen to hit it lucky and you actually get healed, I can take the credit. If you don't, you didn't have enough faith. Jesus never, ever failed to heal one person on account of their lack of faith. Neither did any of the apostles. They never neglected to heal somebody because of their lack of faith in God. Those faith healers who attribute the inability of someone to be healed on their lack of faith ignore the Bible. We're going to talk about them more next time. One day you and I are going to face a disease that will probably take us home. We'll pray for healing. Our friends will pray for our healing. We'll beg God to give us more time with the people we love. It's going to happen. You might be taken out in a car wreck or something, but eventually many in this room are going to be told they have an illness that's not going to be treatable. We'll likely not understand. Some will come to us and say, you just don't have enough faith. Others will come to us and say, you must have unconfessed sin. Some will suggest that we go to some wonder healer somewhere. In that moment, you're going to find out the depth of your faith. Can you, with unwavering faith, stand like Paul and proclaim from the death of your spirit, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Thanks to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no sting in death for us. We're believers in Jesus Christ. We're here on a mission from heaven to go back to heaven. And while we're here, we're here for an assignment, just like a soldier's at an assignment in Afghanistan. We long to go home, but we have work to do. And the sooner the work here gets done, the sooner we get to go home. 
And even though we prayed, and even though our illness causes the tent that is our body to waste away, God remains faithful and death has no sting. God's response will be at some point for most of us. No healing's gonna come this time. I'm calling you home. Your healing's gonna come when you get here. My plan requires this so others can come home too. I'll be with you. I'll lead you home. My grace is sufficient for you too. You see, I've already healed you. I've already saved you. Death has no victory, and because of Jesus, death is your victory. Yes, Lord, let's pray. God, I thank you that you paid the price so that we could live as people with hope. We can grieve with hope. We can live free because we know that you won't let anything happen to us that doesn't advance the gospel. And one day, every one of us is going to be called home, and it's okay. It's okay. This is the waiting room. So God, I pray that we would begin to prepare for that moment, that we would wrap our minds around death, that we'd wrap our minds around your greater purpose for our lives, that we'd quit being so selfish and start seeing ourselves as part of a bigger picture, a much bigger global movement of Christ. Help us, God, to not hold on to the things of this world, to not develop deep roots, to, to store up our own treasures, to chase our own things. Help us, God, to see the eternal because of what Jesus has done. God, some people that hear my voice are headed to hell for all of eternity. It does not have to be that way. God, please move their hearts. Maybe something in this message move them to understand. Pray for them now, Lord. Ask that you would move their hearts, that you would bend your spirit towards them, that you would meet them where they are and bring them home. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.